Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning to the book of Exodus again this morning. Our reading today comes from Exodus chapter 14. Boys and girls, I need you to listen really carefully to the Bible reading this morning. It's a really famous story. It's a story that you'll know quite well, but I need you to listen really carefully because we're going to talk about this story in just a few minutes. So it's Exodus 14. You'll find it on pages 56 and over into 57 of the Pew Bibles. We're going to read the whole of the chapter. Uh, It's quite a long chapter, 31 verses, but a famous story and uh, important for us to read it together. So boys and girls, make sure you're following along, listening really carefully. And as we read Exodus 14 together, we remember that it's God's word to us. So Exodus 14, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haroth between Migdal and and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host." And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all other all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Haroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly." And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land 
and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then, Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn back to Exodus chapter 14. You'll find that passage on pages 56 and 57 of the Blue Blue Pew Bibles. And as you're turning it up, let's pray for a moment together. Father, this is a famous story. It's a story that we have known well since childhood. But we pray that you would open our eyes to help us to see it in a fresh way. Help us to have the eyes of faith and may you draw us to our precious Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Be glorified in our time together this morning, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a commonly held theory or belief that's popular in church circles, and it's a theory or belief that I like to challenge. The theory goes something like this. It's that there are some easy sermons to preach. So the sermons that are easy to preach are based on the, on, on the stories in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, that we know and love. So easy sermons to preach include the following. Genesis 3, the fall. 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion's den. They're easy sermons to preach and listen to because we know the story. And because we know the story, we think that we don't really need to listen to the sermon. It's a great story, we think. And what more needs to be said about it? You, you, you could include the story in front of us on that list this morning. Exodus 14, Moses and God's people crossing the Red Sea. It's a great story. But what more needs to be said about it? We need to challenge that theory, and here's why. The, the, the big-ticket stories of the Bible that we think we know well can actually be the stories that we don't know the detail of. I would put it to you this morning that you know this story well, not because of how the Bible tells it, but because of how a children's Bible story book or a song puts it. 
What's the first thing that comes into your head when you hear this question? How did Moses cross the Red Sea? It's the song, isn't it? Did he swim? No. Did he sail? No. Did he fly? Did he jump? No. No. Did he run? No. How did he get across? God blew with his wind, puff, puff, puff. He blew just enough, enough, enough. And through the sea, God made a path. That's how he got across. But what's the first thing that comes into your head when you hear this question? What happens to the Egyptians after God's people get across? Do you know the answer? You should. We, we, we read it earlier in the service. The Red Sea crashes on top of the Egyptians and on dry ground, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That bit isn't included in the song. It's not in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's kind of gory, brutal, obscene. It's a bit like the ending of Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody remembers Daniel being pulled out and hailed as a faithful hero. No one remembers that the men who set him up, along with their families, are thrown into the lion's den as punishment. The big ticket stories of the Bible that we think we know well can actually be the stories that we don't know the detail of. And they can also be the stories that we don't apply to our own hearts. We'd rather have something more obscure, less well known. But as we often say in church, everything that we have in the Bible is for our good and is here to help us follow Jesus in this world. So as we're looking at this story this morning, what, what do you need to pray? What do, you, what, what do you need to pray as I'm talking? You need to pray that the Lord would help you to understand this story with fresh eyes. We've done that already. You need to pray that you would have the eyes of faith and not just memories of where and when you first learned this story. And if you do that, you might just find that it's not as easy a sermon to listen to as you first thought it might be. Exodus then. We've been back in this book since the turn of the year. We rattled through the big section on the plagues. We've slowed down and we've seen God's people get out of Egypt. They've nearly escaped the hand of the Egyptians, but there's one final, epic, climactic face-off between God and Pharaoh. And it happens on the banks and on the bed of the Red Sea. This morning, we're going to think about three things as we look at this famous story together. Our points this morning are a little bit more wordy than usual, but they'll appear on the screen to keep us right. First of all, we're going to see the on-the-run people who are down in the dumps with doubt. First of all, then, the on-the-run people who are down in the dumps with doubt. Exodus 14 begins with God's people on the run. They're fleeing Egypt and have been released from the iron grip of Pharaoh, but they're caught in a trap, and it's a trap of the Lord's making. In verses 1 to 3, we're told that the Lord tells Moses to lead the people to a place between Migdal and the Red Sea. The route that the Lord has led Israel on is the best way, as we saw the last time, but from a human perspective, from the perspective of a military strategy, it's a terrible move. Pharaoh and the Egyptians hear about what the Israelites are doing, and they regret the decision to let them go. In verse 5 they say, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? They're presumably thinking about the economic downturn that's coming their way. They're losing all their cheap labor, and now they have no one to do the jobs that no one else wants to do. Israel are caught as well. They're caught between the advancing Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And the army they see is coming for them. And it scares the life out of them. In verse 6 we're told that Pharaoh gets on his chariot 
and leads the army in following the Israelites. You'll notice in verse 7 that there are 600 chariots behind him, but also all the other chariots of Egypt with officers of all of them. Having chariots in ancient times was a significant advantage in war. Pharaoh is coming at the Israelites, a wandering and trapped nation with his most prestigious and imposing force. The Israelites see Pharaoh coming in verses 10 to 12. They see the Egyptians marching and they feared greatly. Look at what they say to Moses in verses 11 and 12. They say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's astonishing. The the people are incredibly fickle. They've been released by Pharaoh. God has rescued them by the blood of the lamb. But now they want to go back into slavery and bondage in Egypt. The people of Israel are on the run but they are down in the dumps with doubt. Now, what relevance does that have for us? Well, the answer comes as we think about what the Israelites are doing. They're looking back at their former life, the life they lived before God saved them, and they're saying, we want to go back there. They beg to be left alone so they can serve the Egyptians. Life is harder now for them having been rescued. In Egypt, they had jobs, they had food, they had houses. In the wilderness, by the banks of the Red Sea, they're unemployed, out of food, and homeless. All of a sudden, what they left behind looks very attractive. Did you ever doubt that being a Christian is worth it? Do you ever think, if I wasn't a Christian, life would be so much better? Do you ever compare your life to the life of someone who isn't a Christian and think, I wish I could live in that way? How would you finish this sentence? If I wasn't a Christian, I would. What would you do? Just like the people of Israel in this story, one of the temptations we face as followers of Jesus is that we're tempted to return to our pre-conversion life. We get down in the dumps with doubt and think that God is out to spoil our fun and to turn us into robots. But for on-the-run doubters, Moses tells God's people, verses 13 and 14, fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Moses gives the Lord's people three exhortations, all of which we need to hear. First of all, fear not. Don't be afraid. Sin can pull us down. Judgment can weigh heavily on our minds. We're sinners. We do deserve judgment. But the Lord will fight for you. Jesus has done that for us. He has fought and he has won as our man of sorrows. Stand firm. The Israelites faced an army and they wanted to give in and return to slavery. We face an army, but our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We face the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We capitulate so easily. But Moses' word to us is repeated in the New Testament. We're to take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Our armor is the gospel. 
It's faith in the finished work of Christ. Satan says, you cannot resist me, but we say, no, I can. I am Christ's and I'm no longer under the power of sin. God, through Moses, tells on the run doubters to fear not, stand firm and be still. Can you imagine what it's like to stand still as the greatest army in the world bears down on you? Your instincts would either be to flee or to fight. What's your instinct when it comes to facing your weaknesses and problems? Do you naturally fight to sort things out yourself? Or do you flee and hope that your problems disappear? God says you have only to be silent. In other words, be still. That doesn't mean you abdicate responsibility and do nothing. It means that you take responsibility for what is your responsibility, but you leave the rest to God. Our problem is often that we take responsibility for what's not our responsibility. So I'm responsible for being a good parent, but I'm not responsible for the choices of my children. I must leave that to God and be still. You're responsible for being a good employee or or working hard as someone who's self-employed, but you're not responsible for the actions of your boss or your customers. You must leave that to God and be still. We're responsible for telling others about Jesus, but we're not responsible for their salvation. We must leave that to God and be still. And ultimately, while we're all responsible for our sin, we're not responsible for achieving forgiveness. We have to leave that to God too and be still. Exodus 14 tells us about the on their own people who are down in the dumps with doubt. And what does God tell them? What does God tell us to do? Fear not, stand firm, be still. The, the second thing we see in this story is the God who is concerned for his own glory swats his enemies aside. The on their own people who are down in the dumps with doubt The God who is concerned for his own glory swats his enemies aside. Exodus is all about God's glory. The whole book tells us who God is. We've seen that already in this series. Exodus 3 tells us that that God's glory is all-consuming. He is holy and pure and without sin. As we've seen over the past few weeks and again this morning, Pharaoh is trying to exert his authority over God's people. Exodus 14 is the final showdown between the Lord and Pharaoh. But at the very beginning of the showdown, God determines to gain glory by determining that he alone is Lord. Look at verse 4. God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God says the same thing in verses 17 and 18. Pharaoh is king of Egypt and he thinks that he is the world at his beck and call. But God is king over all the earth and he shows his glory through what happens on the, on the banks and on the bed of the Red Sea. Now, the detail of what God does is familiar to us. God commands Moses to lift up his staff, stretch out his hand over the sea and divide it so that the people can go through on the dry ground. The miracle happens in verses 21 and 22. The detail is amazing. Look at what we're told. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. In the new heavens and new earth, 
I hope there's a cinema where you can go to watch all of the amazing stories recorded in the Bible. I want to see this one back. The people of Israel walking through the Red Sea. In my head, I can see children skipping to the other side, playfully flicking the walls of water with their hands as they go. Children love water. We saw that in the children's address. Stopping for a moment to see sea creatures they'd never seen before and would never see again. Some really silly people said that this miracle didn't happen. A pastor called Donald Bridge tells the story of a liberal preacher visiting an African-American church. As the minister talked about the crossing of the Red Sea, someone shouted, Praise the Lord, taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. The minister, who didn't believe in miracles, was annoyed at being interrupted. So in a patronizing way, he told the congregation the Israelites were probably in marshland with a dropping tide, so they were only wading through six inches of water. In response to this, the same voice as before shouted, Praise the Lord! Drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. However it happened, this was a mighty miracle. This is a supernatural act of God. The God who is concerned for his own glory shows it by driving back the sea. But he also shows it by swatting his enemies aside. From a human perspective, Israel had gone the wrong way. But the Lord had led them in a certain direction so that he could lure the Egyptians into chasing Moses across the desert. And when they finally caught up, it was at the right, right at the spot where God had planned for them to meet their watery doom. The Egyptians go after the Israelites in verses 23 to 25, and they get stuck and they start to panic. But there's nothing they can do to escape. The Lord tells Moses to stretch out his hand and return, to see the, uh, return the sea to normal, and he obeys. Just imagine standing on the shore watching all of this happen. Your whole family has got a cross. They're standing beside you. The Egyptians are stuck. You can see that. And then the walls of water that the boys and girls have, have skipped past begin to fall, fall, fall until they crash on top of the Egyptians. And before you know it, the bodies of Egyptians are washing up on the shoreline. God's enemies, Israel's enemies, are swatted aside and God is glorified. What do you think of that? It seems brutal, uncaring, harsh, but it was right and it was just. Think about it. Pharaoh and his soldiers were cruel men and were bent on destroying God's people. But the men of Egypt who drowned the boys of Israel in Exodus 1.22 are drowned in the Red Sea. It's poetic justice. And 14.24 tells us they're drowned at daybreak, which is when Ra, the sun god, should have risen to their aid. But Ra was unable to save them. The corpses in the water were assigned to Egypt that God is God. He is concerned for his own glory and he just swats his enemies aside. Do you know, this is really important for you to understand if you're not a Christian. Something similar will happen at the end of time. But people who reject the Lord will be swallowed up in judgment and he will be glorified. It might be the case that you're as hard spiritually as Pharaoh was. You're rejecting God, you're not trusting him. If you continue in that way, in that spiritual condition, the right and just thing for God to do when you meet him 
will be to separate you from him for all eternity. God is concerned for his own glory and he wills what his enemies aside. All those who oppose him, however nicely, however politely, he will swat them aside. If you were to be swept into the presence of God today, what would happen? Would you be swatted aside or would you be welcomed home? The on the run people who are down in the dumps with doubt. The God who is concerned for his own glory swats his enemies aside. Thirdly and briefly, the free people who are full of praise for the God of their salvation. The free people who are full of, the praise, full of praise for the God of their salvation. God was doing something more than judging the Egyptians in Exodus 14. He was also saving the Israelites. And again, it was for his own glory. At Passover, God's people were saved from judgment by the blood of the Lamb. At the Red Sea, they are saved through the judgment of the wicked Egyptians. What, what could be more amazing than God saving his people by bringing them through the sea? It's one of the most amazing things that God has ever done. People are still talking about it. As Nehemiah says in one of his prayers, you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. The, the crossing of the Red Sea brought glory to God by convincing the Israelites to believe in God, which may have been the greatest miracle of all. The Israelites must have had some faith already because they were willing at least to follow God between two great walls of water. Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But they made an even firmer commitment when it was all over. Exodus 14 ends on this triumphant note. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. God was fulfilling his, his grand purpose of saving a people for his own glory. For that to happen, his people had to trust him and worship him. Now notice the order. God didn't wait for his people to trust him before he would save them. No, instead he takes the initiative. First the people saw their salvation, then they feared and believed. And then they sang. Then they were full of praise for the God of their salvation. Exodus 15 is a song of victory that was sung after the events of Exodus 14. The song celebrates the judgment of the Egyptians, which seems a little bit cold-blooded, but judgment by God of evil is a good thing. It's something to be celebrated because it also brings salvation. We, we don't have time to consider Exodus 15, but just look at verses 9 and 10 of that chapter. The people sing and say, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. The people sang of the arrogance of the Egyptians who thought they would do whatever they wanted. But they also sang of the God who just blows and that's it. They sing of the God of their salvation who has freed them from bondage and from slavery. Now, how does this story connect with us? Well, it's fascinating to think about how the New Testament uses the story of the Exodus. In the Gospels, we read of Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan. Time and time again in the Bible, water represents judgment. So Noah and the ark, the Egyptians in the Red Sea, Jonah and the whale. As Jesus is baptized, he immerses himself in judgment. It's a picture of the cross. 
In Mark 10, 38, Jesus describes his death as a baptism. What water is the symbol of judgment, the cross is the reality. At Calvary, the waters of judgment engulfed Jesus and the land was covered in darkness. And afterwards, Jesus sank into the tomb. But on the third day, he rose. God brings life out of death, salvation out of judgment, light out of darkness. All the stories of rescue from water have been building up to this moment. They've been preparing us to understand the cross and the resurrection. God brings his people through the waters of death in the person of his son. Imagine again the walls of water collapsing in on each other with people and horses being tossed about and dragged down into the depths. This is what Jesus stepped into at the cross. Jesus plunged into the chaos of the waters of judgment so that we can walk through on dry ground. Imagine the people of God standing safe on shore, watching God's judgment unfold before their eyes. That's what we're doing as we watch with the eyes of faith, God's son hanging on the cross. On Good Friday, we were slaves under the authority of sin and facing divine judgment. On Easter morning, we're a liberated people, free from sin, free from judgment. If we're down in the dumps with doubt, what should we do? Fear not, stand firm and be still. The exodus, the cross and resurrection are God's objective demonstrations to us in history that he is for us, however we feel and whatever's happening. Whatever our circumstances, we can trust in him. If you're not concerned for his glory, if you're not concerned about him at all, what should you do? Well, you should waken up. One day God will, will swat his enemies aside. He, he will be perfectly right to do so. You might complain that it's unfair, but it's really not. You're a rebel. You've rejected him. He is simply being consistent. If you're not concerned for his glory, you really should be. And you should turn to him today by trusting in Christ. Finally, what if you're part of the free people who have been saved by God through Jesus? Well, you should be full of praise. We have been judged in Christ and saved in Christ. We have passed through the waters in him. And now we stand on the eastern shore on our way home. And we sing, just as the people of God did in Exodus 15. But our song is different, greater, better. Now we sing that it was finished upon that cross. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Free from every plan of darkness. Free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. The big ticket stories of the Bible that we think we know well can actually be the stories we don't know the detail of. If that's the case, it's amazing what we're missing out on. The story of the crossing of the Red Sea tells us about the on-the-run people who are down in the dumps with doubt, the God who is concerned for his own glory, who will swat his enemies aside one day, and the free people who should be full of praise for the God of their salvation, 
because we are free because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this story and we thank you for all that it reminds us of. And we pray that we would realize that our salvation has been won through what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that he has passed through the waters of death, also that we might walk through safely and stand on the eastern shore, ready and waiting for home. Father, help us to trust in Jesus, to follow him. And we pray for those who haven't yet come to know him, that that they might realize that they are enemies with you. And if that doesn't change, one day you will swat them aside. Father, we pray that you bless your word to all of our hearts this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.